0: Well good morning all of branch we are continuing on in our series no restrictions apply and we've been talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ going global and all the restrictions we have a tendency to put on ourselves to to make sure that, you know, that doesn't apply to me. And what we're doing is really seeing that really does apply to all of us who are Christians, all of us who are engaged with the gospel. And uh, how that how we do that is a different question. In fact, uh, this year I got an opportunity with my wife to do a little bit of that as we uh, got into a plane, flew 13 hours to uh, Taipei, got back on another plane, flew another five hours and landed in, in uh, Indonesia at a... At a A place, a small island called Bali. Now, those of you who's ever wanted to go to Bali, anybody here is like, I'd go to Bali in a heartbeat because it sounds awesome, right? It's not awesome. It sucks. Uh, No, just kidding. Uh, At least the airport did for us. We had an eleven-hour layover after already several hours of flight, and we were going to get on a domestic flight and fly another six to six to seven hours across Indonesia to go finally. Um, stay another spot where we'd get on another plane and fly an hour inland. Uh, this was an amazing flight, a bunch of flights to try to get to and connect to one of our global workers. And, um, and Bali was the interesting stop on our way there. It was great on the way back, but on our way there sitting in the middle of an airport. The airport's an open-air airport as an international, and so when you get off and you step off that airport and you walk out, and suddenly you're hit by what feels like a giant armpit. Just hot, nasty. You're suddenly sweaty. You thought you showered. You didn't. It's just, it is overwhelmingly just sweltering, and we're sitting there with our luggage, and we're looking around going like, we got 11 hours to burn. What are we going to do? We see a couple restaurants. The place is packed. People are socked out all over the place. We're kind of looking at ourselves going, this isn't good. We don't know the language. We don't know the currency. We don't know where we are on the island. So when people are like, yeah, just go to a beach. We're like, what are you talking about? We don't know how to hail a cab. We don't know how to get anything. We had no international phone service. We were in the middle of like Stuckville. And so we're going like, what do we do? We realize, so we'll go to the, we got it. We'll check in our bags early. We'll go to the inner, the, the domestic port. And so we take our bags and we walk all the way. And you're not talking about like walking on a nice, like with, you know, those fast little, um, those little walkways or whatever turns stuff. I forget what they're the moving walkways and the, they don't have anything like that. Literally you're going over curbs and past your, dodging all kinds of taxis as you're pulling your luggage because they're not connected. The international and domestic are two totally different airports. And so you finally get your way past a Hindu temple and everything else to drop your stuff off. And as we're walking up to go in the domestic zone, they, the only guy that we've met that speaks English goes, hold on, let me see your tickets. I hand it to him. He's like, you, oh, you, you can't check in until two hours before your flight at 1 a.m. in the morning. And we're going... Now we're stuck in a country we don't know, with a language we don't know, with a currency we don't know, in an armpit that we don't like, in the midst of a, a, a religious people that we don't understand, and it's going to get dark. And we're thinking we could, stick in the, we could sit in the Starbucks, we don't even know if the water is drinkable because we just don't know what's going on. And so we wind up sitting around like literally in the Bali airport for the next multiple hours with one simple question. What in the world do we do now? You ever ask yourself that question in any scenario in your life? That's not a fun question to ask. What in the world do we do now? What do we do now? What do we do now? I hate that question. And so it's especially interesting that I think when we really dig into the concept of global missions, when you really dig into taking the gospel globally, what oftentimes causes us to build up restrictions about us going or not going is based on that one question, well, what do I do now? Imagine being an actual global worker, an actual missionary lands in another country Who, while standing in that country. You just get off. You don't know the language yet. Maybe you have a contact, but now everything is open to you. You're going to live here. You're going to reach these people for Jesus. And man, you do not have a clue what you're going to do next. What do you do next? Let alone if you've just moved into Corona or whether you've been living here for years when it comes to reaching people for Jesus. And you hear me saying, we got 200,000 people surrounding us that need to know Jesus Christ. And we go, yeah. And then you leave church. You go, okay, now what am I going to do about it? What do I do next? Well, thankfully, we're going to answer that question this morning in the book of Acts. And if you will, we're going to look for that answer in Acts chapter 13. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open that with me to Acts chapter 13. And we're going to be looking at verses 4 and actually all the way through 12. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can go ahead and pull one out of the seats beneath you. and, And you can find it on page 921. If you've got your app, you can open it to there. But just as you're opening to there, I'll give you kind of a catch up on what's going on. Dr. Luke has written this history of the church because he was asked to by a Roman official and it's his second volume of a two-volume work. And so in this volume, he's going through the 20 years of church history. We've seen the gospel go from Jerusalem, now moved to a city called Antioch, where it's predominantly Gentile. It's no longer a Jewish gospel. It's an everybody's gospel. And so this church is formed that's filled with non-Jewish people and they think think, hey, we've got these two great people, Saul and Barnabas. God wants us to send them out. And so they prayed over them and pushed them out the door and off they go onto global mission. Sort of like what we did last week with the couple that we commissioned. And so kind of are moving them on. Let's get you out to where God's calling you to go. And that's exactly what happens with Barnabas and Saul. And so we pick up in verse 4 as they've now been prayed for and they've been sent off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, it says, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues to the Jews and they had John to assist them. Makes total sense. We can move on, right? You're like, what? I love, I love biblical uh, geography because We don't actually know where in the world these locations are as Americans. We're just sort of like, yeah, they went places and did stuff. You know, that's kind of how this works. But here's the first thing I want to show you. Yeah, they went places and they did stuff. But when they had the gospel given to them and they asked the question, what do we do now? Dr. Luke informs us that what they did is they crossed a border. And that's what we should be doing. We should take this message in order for it to go international. You got to cross a border. You got to cross some kind of border. In their case, they were going to cross a border overseas. You no, know, realize how this looks for them. Number one, this says being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went to Seleucia and from there sailed to Cyprus. And um, on the geography side, this is what this looks like. They left roughly Antioch. Seleucia is a little south, and they crossed straight across that to a small town port called Salimus. no longer exists, but it's there. And now you can now they will proceed on this. Island called Cyprus to go all over the island and teach the gospel. Now, what's interesting about this is that this is now an overseas gospel. This is an overseas mission. They crossed a border that was represented as water. In our case, God may be calling you or me to bring that message over a border. As the Holy Spirit sent them, so the Holy Spirit will send us. It's God's will that the gospel goes across borders, not just man's desire. God wants everybody on the earth to hear about this. God doesn't want to leave anybody out. This isn't just America's gospel. This isn't just the West's. No, this is the world's message. And so what we see is that God wants it to cross. Maybe it's the border of Mexico. Maybe it's to get down there and bring the message and keep on going. Maybe it's a big 14-hour flight and then a nine-hour flight and then into the middle of Nowheresville in Indonesia. Maybe that's where you've been called to take it. Or maybe it's off in the middle of the Balkans or wherever God has it for you. There may be a border for you to cross. And I want to encourage that you don't push that out of your mind. The borders are not an elimination. They're exactly what we're doing, what it's about when it goes global. But I do understand that some of us, we can't go. You say, wait, Greg, this is this whole thing's about removing the I can't to the I can. What I mean by that is some of you actually have physical ailments. You, you, you can't sit on a plane and live in another location because you would literally get off the plane within 24 hours to 48 hours to three months, die. You know, that's the kind of reality. You wouldn't be able to get around to what you need to do. But you can still go global. But you'll go global with your prayers. Your prayers can cross borders, Amen. You have the opportunity to talk to the God who is everywhere in this universe and speak to him. That's primarily why you find on your seats this morning uh, uh, two cards. One card is a nation card. This isn't, we're not playing a, like a large game of risk. This is an opportunity for you to like pull it up and look at the nation that you're, you're sitting at. And what I want you to do is take that card or the card near you. And I want you to realize this is a nation that you can pray for. And you can pull that card up and look at it. Um, Did anybody get Djibouti? I'm really hoping somebody got Djibouti because it's like my favorite name for a nation on all the earth. It's my son's favorite names too. So, but I want you to take that card. I want you to be praying for that nation. Because I want your prayers to go global. Now, you can take the second card and you actually draw a line from Corona to that nation, just as a way of showing how far that gospel has to go if somebody was to go there. And this is just a way of opening your eyes and opening your ears up to pray for another nation. Now, you say, what am I supposed to pray for them? Just like, God bless the nation, may they have peace. Yay. Um, I want you guys to have more information than that. In fact, if you will go to a website called Operation World, write that down Operation World. Operation World is a website that is always pulling in data from these nations. It'll tell you how many Christians and how many Muslims or how many Buddhists or how many Hindus. It'll give you a percentage list. It'll tell you the major problems with the government, the major problems with the people. And it lays out these in like intensity of order of what you should be praying for for that nation and it talks about what the needs for the mission are and those things. So Operation World is a great place to take your card, go online, look up Operation World, and you will discover exactly how you can pray across a border. And I hope that what that does begins to give you a heart and eyes for the world around us. We don't have to be stuck only locally. We can do both local and global, no matter where you find yourself. So I wanna encourage you in that way. But then I wanna take border as a metaphor too. While they may have crossed the seas to get to Cyprus, some of you may not have a sea to cross. You may just have a street to cross. It may be a neighbor. It may be a hallway to cross. It may be a small, thin cubicle wall or a yard that you're working at. But everybody's got borders. And everybody in the local area has an opportunity to consider who is it that I need to cross the border to cross? Maybe the, my discomfort because we're different, or my discomfort because uh, you know I haven't really talked to him, and I've been in this business for over fourteen years or whatever, and we haven't talked yet. That's uncomfortable. What border do you need to cross? Because the gospel needs to continue to go, and it goes when we cross a border. So what do I do with this gospel? What do I do cross a border? Second, you're going to then engage the culture. Whatever culture you come to at that place, you you need to engage. In fact, that's what Barnabas and Saul actually do. As we see, when they arrived at Salimus, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. What's interesting in this segment is notice the words that Salimus and the synagogues of the Jews. What we find is that they've come to Cyprus, and they come to a small town that likely Barnabas knows. So if you go back to chapter 4 in the book of Acts you'll discover that Barnabas actually comes from Cyprus. He sold a large plot of land there and gave the money over to the uh, the apostles in order for it to be distributed and used for the poor. And so Cyprus is Barnabas's hometown, his home island, if you will. And so he's come to a culture he understands. They weren't going to just go dive out there into some culture they didn't get or never seen before. They were ready to engage where God led them first, and that was, hey, it seems like God's leading us to your home home island, Barnabas. Let's go there and let's not just talk to anybody. We'll focus on the synagogues where we have a ready-made audience and a ready-made group of people who are willing to listen. So that's exactly what they did. It's super strategic because they understood the cultures. And this is important, you see, you and I need to understand our culture. We live in a culture, and too often we drink the culture instead of think about the culture. And I don't want you to drink, I want you to think. I don't want you only to drink, I want you to ponder and consider what is it that you're watching? on that streaming video? What is it that you're reading in that magazine? What is it that you're engaging in in that conversation at, at your workplace? What is this culture that has you in it? Because culture it moves like a stream. Isn't that true? Think about back when you were in high school, if you, if you, if you graduated high school, um, those of us who are old enough to have that. How different was the world in high school than it is today? Some of you were like, way different. Others are like a little different, but it's different. The values are different. The way we do things are different. The technology is different. Culture has moved. The question is, have you just drank in the culture and not thought about it? Oftentimes in, in youth ministry, we would say, hey guys, you need to be aware of your culture because if you're not, you're going to be like a dead fish. And you know what a dead fish does in a stream? It just goes down to the stream It never fights against the culture. And I don't want the church to be dead fish, just going with the flow. Off it goes. No, we need to be alive. And there's times where we need to go against the flow. There are times we, need, we can go with it because there have been good changes in our culture and there have been bad ones. And I'm not saying every change in our culture was bad. I'm not saying every change in our culture was good. But we need to be aware of when they're good and when they're bad and engage rightly and not just simply go with the flow. Because one day we might wake up and find out that we're holding values and holding ideas that Jesus never held or never want his church to hold, and so we need to be engaged in that because we need to learn about our culture. Missionaries, when they drop in, the first question they will often ask is, "Okay, what do I do next?" Well, they, they they've crossed the border, so now what? They learn. They're not there to teach American ways or to teach Western ways. They're there to listen and learn what's their ways because they want to hear what's going on in that culture because there's a barrier that exists. There are restrictions to the gospel when it comes to two different cultures. And we want to learn that culture so we can drop those barriers and be able to step in. We can drop those restrictions and win more people. This is what Paul's entire mission strategy was. He sums it up in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. He says, for though I am free from all, writing to this church, he says, I have made myself a servant to all. He viewed himself as somebody who was coming in like the the servant who was going to care and give away what he needed to do, to do his job. And so this is his whole goal, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. His point here is this. He says, hey, when I hung out with my Jewish brothers and my Jewish sisters, I made sure I dressed Jewish. I made sure I went to the temple. I went to the synagogue. We ate the right foods. I made sure I did the right hand washings. I lived like a Jewish person. When I was hanging out with the Pharisees and it was like law central, man, I followed those laws. I did everything I was supposed to. And we think, okay, why'd you do that? So that I might win some of them. I don't want to make an offense. I want to bring the gospel in a way that they'll hear it. Because the gospel is not against the culture. Often it will take a culture and transform it. It's no wonder then he goes on to say to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. And anyway, he makes it clear, I'm not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, meaning I wasn't sinning. I didn't just like go, oh, well, you know, I'm there sinning. I'm going to sin with them. No, he was, he was like, look, this isn't sin, but I'm going to engage because I don't want to have a stumbling block here because I want to win those outside the law. So when he sat down with the Gentiles and they offered him bacon in the morning, he went, Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Right. And then we all said amen together. Let's do that because bacon's awesome. But anyway, the point is that he sat and he joined in, in the food. He went with them to buy what they needed to buy. He wasn't afraid of engaging. How does that look for us? Well, it looks a lot like what you're seeing now. I mean, gone are the suits and ties of the church of of the 1950s. And some of us say amen and some of us lament. What happened was there were astute people looking at the culture, examining the shift, and what they came to realize was that there were many people that viewed suit and ties as just a way to dress up and make yourself look holy and have a horrible life on the rest of the week. An entire movement has existed since the 70s, and the church has been about one thing. You know what? God knows who I am, and he's going to receive me as who I am. I'm going to come just as I am, and it's called an authenticity movement. Now, it has its angles that are wrong, but it has its angles that are right. In fact, pastors can begin to cease being. These people put on pedestals, and we put Jesus on the pedestal, and we worship him, amen? We come into churches, and we're able to welcome everybody, whether you're in a suit, a dress, a tie, whether you're in flip-flops, or whether you're just here to hang out and check things out, because we want you to be able to hear the gospel in a way that you understand it. Music changed because the cultural music shifted. I mean, I love the organ channel on my radio, but I can't seem to find it, right? It's just not there. And the point is simply that as the culture moved, we had to be aware so we could speak to that culture, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's, what, that's what, what got me. That's what captured my attention so I could understand that Jesus Christ took my sin away. I remember dealing with youth ministry and one of the big struggles we would have is like kids going like, what's the big deal about my lying? Like if I lie, why does God care? I mean, I sinned against this person. Why is that a sin against God? What a question. Because it was really trying to say like, Why does God care if I do a small thing to somebody else that he's going to put me in hell for that? And so I had to sit there and think about it. And as we began to look at the culture, what we discovered was it was kind of the advent of the Internet. And, you know, it was before LifeLock and all that fun stuff. And it's still an issue today. Nobody wants their identity stolen. Amen. I mean, you guys, any volunteers? He's like, yeah, no, I don't think so. Can you imagine? My wife and I got on the plane, flew all the way to Bali, and then all the way to where we were and came back. We get home, and suddenly the FBI is knocking on my door. Hey, we want to ask you some questions. We saw that you, you visited these websites. You bought these, um, you bought these horrible, evil things. You did this stuff, and now we're arresting you for, for all this content. And you're like, I, I didn't do any of this. I was out of the country. You would say you were misrepresented. You were framed. That's not me. Someone stole your identity and did horrible things in your name. Nobody wants that. In fact, most of us would be extremely angry. Some of you would go to jail. You would be so angry, right? And somebody has stolen your identity and done horrible evils to people in your name. Well, here's the thing. When God created us, he handed us his identity, his ID. He calls us made in his image. And so when we run around with God's image in us as his ID and we, and we lie to our friend, oh, it's a little lie, but I represent God as a liar. When I, when I lust after that girl, oh, now I represent God as lustful. Oh, when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm thinking proud and arrogant thoughts, I represent God as proud and arrogant, which he's not. And suddenly what you realize is if we're angry because somebody else stole our ID, how much more angry is God that we've represented as completely what he's not? You don't think God's going to bring us to a judgment one day for our bad representation of him? Absolutely you think he's going to be happy to see us when we walk in? He goes, what would you do with my name? Now, right there, you begin to realize, that lays weight into the gospel because then you can say, but what God does is he sent his real ID, his real son, who never messed up his ID to come and take away all that sin and all that brokenness and he bore it and he paid for the debt we owe God so that we could be right before him. So that when you stand, he says, what did you do with my name? We say, I did horrible things, but Jesus bore my sin, and he gave me a new name, and now I'm walking in him. He says, I see what you did. You did everything that my son did, because I see Jesus in you. The gospel becomes different when we see the cultural need to shape it. When you talk to Muslims, it's going to look different. You need to listen and learn, because we want to be able to give them the opportunity to know God and be forgiven of their sins. When we talk to Mormons, it's going to be different. When you talk to different subcultures, when you talk to different people who are into different music, there's a different angle. I remember it as Germany. My conversations with the men there, they were trying to tell me that sin was taking care of like mud on a screen. It's just, it was just like slap up on a window and you just wipe it off. Do the right prayers, spend the right time with God and boom, you're cleaned it off. That's how you deal with sin. I said, no, no, no. We looked at some of the windows that were flying by on the U-Bahn, which was their subway system. And I'm like, And what you'd find on those windows was not mud. You'd find men and kids had scratched their IDs and stuff into the windows, so they were just scarred up. And I said, no, what has to happen isn't that you throw mud on and clean up. The scars are the sin. You have to have God literally take it out and replace the whole thing. And that's what he does when he gives you a new life and a new heart. And so you've got to look at the culture surrounding you and think, don't just drink. Because when you do that, you will find opportunities to deliver the message of Jesus over and over and over again. That's exactly what we do. We move into preaching the gospel, preaching the message of Jesus. Now that we've engaged that culture, we want to hand over this precious gift that God has given to us. And that's exactly what they did. They proclaimed the word of God. They didn't show up, and it doesn't say, and they played charades, right? You remember, better, better references. Do you guys remember Gestures, the game, Gestures? Gestures was fun because you had all these cards. You had to rapidly, as quickly as possible, get responses from people as you're doing crazy things. And You're like, oh, it's bouncing a basketball. I wasn't kicking a soccer ball. Come on, get it right. If all we do is go out there and be good to people, if all we do are good works, we play the game of Gestures, and people are going to fill in the blank. You're a good person. That's because you're just one of those nice people in life. That's all. You're not like the rest of those Christians or whatever you name it. They'll guess at why you're good, but you have to tell them why. We have to give the gospel. We got to give the reasons. We got to speak this. If it's not spoken, they're guessing. And that's exactly what Saul and Barnabas did as they went from Synagogue to synagogue, they preached the word of God. You may struggle with knowing how to do that. You may be like, I still wrestle and how to exactly deliver that to people. So I, we have our share keystone. It's one of our pieces that we offer as part of our development and, and discipleship here. Take it, learn. How do I give the gospel away? How do I engage with people and expect God to work? Because he can. In fact, he can work powerfully, especially in particular people. Now that you preaching the gospel, what do you look for? I believe you look for a person of peace. He's like, what in the world is that? Doesn't that sound nice? I want to meet a person of peace. They sound so kind and, and pleasant. They're not always that way, but they're definitely powerful and influential. It comes from an, in, an incident in Jesus' life in which he's gathering 72 of his disciples to send them all out two by two to preach the gospel and to heal, and to cast out demons. So he gives them these instructions. He tells them about how, what they should carry and how quick they should go. And as they gather together, he sends them out. And he says, now listen, when you come into a town, find somewhere to stay. And that was usually found in a home. Somebody would open their home up and give you hospitality. He says, if you come to their home, offer them peace. And he says, and if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. And if not, it'll return to you he says, if that's the case, just leave. In other words, you come in, you were supposed to say like shalom or you're to share the gospel. And if it was received, boom, you've met a person of peace. Now, what's interesting about persons of peace is they have some very powerful effects. Maybe you can remember one of the persons of peace that Jesus engaged with. It was a woman. Uh, who came to a well, and Jesus is sitting alone in the noonday sun, and he asked this woman, would you please give me a drink? And she's like, why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan and a woman. This isn't how this works. And he goes, yeah, 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 that's nice. If you had asked me, I would have given you the water that never stops. She's like, give me this water. And he's like, okay, well, let's talk about this. She's like, well, and he's like, go get your husband. And she's like, uh, I don't have a husband. He's like, you're right. You've had 10, and you're hanging out with, and the one you're sleeping with right now isn't. And suddenly she's like, oh, change the subject. She starts talking about something completely different. And in the midst of all this, suddenly she realizes this is the Messiah, and she rushes into town. And she says, come meet a man who's told me everything that I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? And the whole town comes out, all these Samaritans, to hear from Jesus his message. That's a person of peace. Or suddenly... They seemed resistant, they opened up, they received it, and it moves in a new way amongst a new group of people. Guys, there are persons of peace on your on your block, there are persons of peace around you. Paul Saul and Barnabas meet one, his name is Sergius Paulus. It's found in our next section. It says, When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, which is the capital of the island, they came upon a certain magician. A Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, that means the son of a man named Joshua or Jesus. It was a popular name, but we'll, we'll point out why that's put in here in a minute. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. So he's the governor, basically of the island. He has command over this entire region. He is well known in history. We have found um, like basically inscriptions with his name on it. He was once in charge of the Tiber River in Rome, in which he controlled the flooding, and that was a huge job, very prestigious in Rome. And so this man is well known in history. He was clear, truly a real man, and he was over Cyprus at this time. In fact, What's interesting is that he probably was a Jewish God-fearer, hanging out in the synagogues, because they're going from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue, preaching this message. Sergius Paulus hears it, and so he was the procon. This bar Jesus was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So he says, "Hey, come to my house, my palatial mansion, or you know, my giant palace. Come, come, tell me this gospel." So he's curious. He leans in. And he'll come to faith in Christ, as we'll see here in a few minutes. But what happens with him is he breaks open the next step for Saul and Barnabas. I mean, they just finished. They're walking around in Cyprus going, We're done. We hit every synagogue in town. We go back through. Where do we go now? Now, they meet Sergius Paulus, and what's interesting about Sergius Paulus is his son is in charge of another region um, that's a little bit north. It's this place called Pisidian Antioch. In fact, as you'll see, they travel all the way through to Paphos, and they're in that region. They will then travel north. You see that word Galatia, the big bold one, or Asia? Right in the middle is Iconium, and that area is called Pisidian Antioch. His son rules that area. Next week, when they take off to that area, that's where they go immediately. And it's very likely, in fact, at this point, Saul changes his name from Saul to Paul. Why? Because he's holding letters that say, I'm coming from Sergius Paulus, who's who's giving me right to come into this area. Here's my letters of recommendation. Besides, I've taken on his name. And so he takes on a Gentile name that represents this powerful man so that he has access to the next area. These guys are smart. They know what they're doing. They're working through their cultural powers to get this message to people. And here in Paphos, they meet this man who opens the door and it starts to spread even further. And they, these people, these people of peace could be on your block. They could be in your church here. They could be all over the place. You don't know whether you will find them. My guy that I met who was a was an uh, actual man of peace was an interesting kid at the time. I was doing youth ministry. And when I first showed up, him and his two brothers, all they would do is skateboard in the back. And I'd have to go back there and say, okay, we're going to start church. Get out. And they'd be like, Ugh. and they'd sit in the back of the room, look at me like, you're an idiot, why are you talking to me? My mom made me come here. My sister's in the leader. I don't want to be here. And then to get up and leave and go play more skateboard. One day in the middle of that, it just clicked for Andrew. He just woke up. And suddenly Andrew's like, oh my gosh, this Jesus is real. The gospel's true. And it just started rolling in his head. I'll tell you, Andrew was a person of peace. You never thought that little skateboarder was, was like suddenly this giant evangelist. But within the next few months, he had brought in 30 different kids from the school, all into hardcore music, all into his own zone, and we had this group in our youth group called the Men in Black," that's what we call them, because they just loved hardcore and they were into it, and the gospel just started moving through this one young man. That's a personal piece. And you never know how far that'll go. But you have to give the gospel expecting God can engage with somebody. You don't know who they are. So let's give the gospel out indiscriminately. It may bring that person to peace up. And suddenly it starts to roll and start to, starts to move through a place. But when you'll meet a person to peace, trust me, there's something looming in the background. It's called resistance. Let's look back for a minute and back up here. Because we're not, Sergius Paulus is there, but in verse 8 it says... When they had gone, or sorry, verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island of Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. We pick up back him. So, he, Sergius Paulus invites him in, but Elamus, the magician, for that's what his name means, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And so, this is an interesting character. I mean, what's going on here? Last time I checked... Jewish and magician, those things don't really go together in your mind, do they? They don't for me. I mean, a Jewish magician, what is a Jewish magician for? Why are they here? Well, he was hired to pull rabbits out of his hat and entertain people with magic tricks. No, no, that's not why he was there. That's not a magician of the ancient world. A magician of the ancient world is even more interesting. I mean, they would have these sticks and they would yell, Experiarmis, right? No, that's not what a magician is either. Magicians in this time period were warlocks. They were called magi. They were wise men. The reason they were considered wise is they would watch the astral signs of the zodiac to get information about the future and what the gods were doing. And as, they would, or, or the angels, in this case, the powers. And they would take that information, they would make predictions about life and where things were going. Today we call it astrology. It's still kind of in vogue in many ways, but this is using the spiritual powers of the world. In fact, Jewish magicians, they would call themselves high priests, were actually extremely good at this. Primarily because they had one book that was supposedly given to them and passed down from Solomon. The whole book is really interesting. We have it today. And it was a scroll that they would read. And every time Solomon laid a foundation stone of the temple, a demon would come out and have to confess because he was so wise of all of his name and the tricks to, to bind him and what you needed to do. And this was all written down and it was a magic book, a magic scroll that these men would carry with them. And so they would call upon Azrael the angel, or they would call upon, uh, I love Megatron. No, not Megatron. A, something like that. It's really interesting. But there were these different angels that they would call upon. And they had power over these demons like no other Gentile magicians did. And so they would call on demons to go curse people, they would call on demons to bless. They would put blessings on the people they were with and give wisdom. And so it's no wonder Sergius Paulus would have one of these guys with him because he would want to defend himself against curses from his enemies and he would want to use it against his enemies. And so these counselors, this guy in particular, is saying, hey, I've got this spiritual power, I've got this wisdom. And in marches is Saul and Barnabas who start preaching that Jesus Christ has defeated the spiritual powers. He's overcome them all, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He rose from the dead, defeated the spiritual powers. He is the one who gives you freedom from all the elemental forces of the universe. This is part of the message that they would have delivered. And Sergius Paulus goes, that sounds interesting. He brings him in and Elamus is going, "Uh uh-uh, I'm going to lose my job. So he starts arguing against him. And starts telling them no, 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 they're liars. This guy hasn't done this. You can't do that. And he's bringing this resistance. And here's what happens. Paul, Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Underline that, mark it, circle it, put it big in your Bible. Because what's just about to be unleashed by the Holy Spirit is not nice. I have to say that to our current culture. Because we think God would never lead you to to be mean. Oh, yeah, watch this. He looked intently at him. I think he gave him the dad eyes. You know what I'm talking about? Your dad had those dad eyes? Or he had the bo- like the boogie eyes, like nah. well, I don't know what it is, but this is warlock versus apostle. Here we go. This is straight out of some interesting fantasy book. But what's going on here is that he intently looks at him, filled his spirit, and he says, You son of the devil. Not bar of Jesus. You're not son of Jesus. No, you son of the devil, you bar devil. You son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? You think Paul lost his temper? Now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind, because that's all he knows God does to people, because he got blinded, right? And unable to see, for the sun, uh, see the sun for a time, immediately a mist of darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. We call this in, in missions a power encounter. When a truth encounter comes, it is truth against truth. I preach the gospel and somebody says, oh, come on, you don't need that stuff. All you got to do is just do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anybody. And we need to be able to say that's a lie. See, when it comes to the resistance that you and I will encounter, all those resistance will be spiritual. We need to challenge resistance. We need to challenge resistance to the gospel. We can't just simply always be nice and like, oh, I'm sorry you think that. I'll just stop talking to you about that. Oh, no, 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 no. Tuck tail and run. No, there is a sense the spirit of God comes upon you to engage, to challenge, to say, no, that's not true. No, 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 no! Oh, yeah, it's okay as long you know, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. They even have sex with anybody. They sleep outside of marriage all they want. You can, you know, it doesn't matter. And we hear all these, all these things in life that yeah, the pornography hurts nobody. Ah, having sex outside of marriage doesn't hurt anybody. Ah, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is, we got to remind them. Not Jesus says it's sin. You know, pride, man. We got to have pride. We got to have big pride. We have pride in who we are. Pride in our parades. Pride, pride, pride. According to the Proverbs, that's the number one thing God hates. Eh, I just ate too much <sighs> again. Do you struggle with gluttony? Hey, you know, what's a big deal about lying? <laughs> it's no big deal except that I can't trust anybody if everybody's lying. How do we even trust when we're being told the truth? Whether it's teachers or media or pastors or you name it. Besides, that's one of the big ten. It seems so mean to point people's lies out. It seems so mean to say, well, Jesus said it's a sin. It seems so mean, except here's the thing Paul stands there and says this because he knows what it is to be a person who resists God. He persecuted the church, he killed Christians. The only reason I can stand up here and tell you, guys, lust and pornography is bad for you is because, guess what? I'm saved by Jesus Christ from the same things. Amen? The reason I can tell you pride is horrible because if you were to open me up, you'd find a lot of it. When we bring this, it's not because we're holier than thou and you are the sinners. <laughs> no, guys, we're a bunch of blind people who found Jesus and he saved us. And so we want to point all the other ones who are just like us to Jesus. How are people going to receive Jesus if they don't know they're guilty of sin? If they don't know God is displeased with their sin, if they don't know that God is going to judge them one day for these things, if we're always just like, man, God made you, he loves you, you're fine as you are, be proud of who God made you and just enjoy it. There's no need for Jesus. Until we admit the brokenness, know the guilt, there's no need for Jesus. Jesus. And there's no need to believe. Sergius Paulus didn't need Jesus if he had spiritual power right here. And so God enacted spiritual power to show him that the truth was the truth. He cut him off. This is, this is common in the spiritual world in the sense that you'll have missionaries who show there's a story very, very popular story out there. I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but it gives you the idea how this kind of stuff works. This young missionary shows up in the Philippine islands and there's this tribe they've been trying to reach for years and they're not listening to the gospel and it's the rainy season. And so they're going to have their big sacrifices and everything and have the, the God who brings their rain every year come out. And that's monsoon season. And every year they're like, the missionary's like, this happens every year. It happens every time they finish and it starts raining. Well, this young new hip missionary shows up and he hears this stuff. And he says, you know what? My God's more powerful than your God, and it isn't going to rain tomorrow. And the older missionaries are like, oh, grab that guy, hide him. You know, they run back, and they're like, you can't say that kind of stuff. What are we going to do now? Because the gospel's on the line. They spent all night praying and praying and praying and praying. And sure enough, the next day, as they're singing, they're doing their dancing, and doing all this stuff, clouds are rolling in overhead. But it never rained. And that island turned to Christ. Because they were not enamored by the power of that God. They were enamored by the message of that God of power. When we're willing to step up and say, you know, our God will reveal himself to you. You know, our God's not going to leave you alone. I pray every single one of your, um, one of your little moves that you're going to do on women at that bar this week, it fails because God's going to disable you. Whatever, you know, I don't know what spiritual uh, things look like in our current culture. But you can step in trusting that God will work and hopefully what they hear, because you've given them the gospel and you've had the truth encounter, suddenly they are aware of the message. See, God wants to empower the gospel to be known globally. And he does it through the message. Notice Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, believed when he saw what had occurred. For he was astonished, not at the power. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. When we preach that message, guys, when we're standing here and we know this gospel is supposed to go, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Cross a border, engage a culture, give the gospel, seek a person of peace. And when that resistance comes, let's stand up. This message saves people from hell. It saves people from judgment. This message gives them a life with their God, their creator, so they don't just sit around. God uses them, invests in them, so that you become somebody who is living a life worth living. Amen? This is a message worthy of giving to people. Let's get it out there. And let's get it to the nations. As we close up, what I'm going to ask you to do is do me a favor. I want you to grab that card. You're going to keep that card. That's your nation. You get to pray over and I want you to do one or two things. One, we're going to pray now, but later, if you want, you can go out into the hallway and you sign your name over that nation as you find it out on the hallway out there. But I want to give you guys an opportunity right now to be praying over that nation that's in your hands. And so as we bow our heads, let's just take that minute to pray. You may be a guest here, and so you may be going like, um, I don't know Jesus, and I'm just curious about this. What, what do I do? What do I would offer you an opportunity instead of praying for that nation, maybe to consider what we've talked about, that Jesus Christ has literally taken the punishment for our sins so that you can have a relationship with your creator. That God doesn't want to condemn you for misusing his ID He wants to replace that brokenness with a new you. Maybe you want to receive that now while we're doing this. Maybe you want to engage with God in that way. Feel free, and if you'd love to let us know that you're doing that, you can just use one of the cards or whatever or just come talk to us afterwards. But we're going to be praying for these nations as you consider that. And so I want to just pray right now. God, would you just see these nations that we're lifting to you? And God, would you allow your gospel to roll there that these people might know you. May May there be persons of peace in every single one of these that it may roll out like just the waves. And God, wherever there is fear, open up our hearts and prepare us. Wherever there's fear in our lives, give us strength. May we be brave. God, we know you are with us. You have opened the way that all men could come in. And God, would you be exalted as you let that gospel roll? In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, amen.